I live about 20 minutes from world-famous Clearwater Beach. I do bike around that area sometimes, but that's about the only time I go there because I'm not much of a beach person. But people come from all over the world to sit in that sand because that's one of the things Clearwater is known for. But there's something else that makes this city famous. Clearwater, Florida is also the worldwide spiritual headquarters of the Church of Scientology. Back in 1975, there was a Scientology-founded group that purchased the large Fort Harrison Hotel in Clearwater for $2.3 million. On the paperwork, the tenant was listed as United Churches of Florida, so the city council and the citizens of Clearwater didn't realize that the new owners were actually the Church of Scientology until after the purchase was finalized. Citizens groups and even the mayor of Clearwater at the time protested against the church establishing a base there, and they repeatedly referred to the group as a cult, but the group stayed. And now, the Scientologists own almost 200 properties in downtown Clearwater, If you drive around the city, you'll see these people walking from one place to another, doing their work or taking courses. My guest today is Kat, and she knows about the Church of Scientology from first-hand experience. When she was barely a teenager, Kat was given to the Scientologists by her mother. Real people? in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this is this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes. And it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad and then on with today's episode. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of... Classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh. Stories that are great for adults and kids alike. 
For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. Kat grew up in Canada, and her family was religious. I grew up in the Mormon faith. We went to church every Sunday. My older siblings were part of seminary and totally involved with all that. And uh, I got baptized when I was eight. The whole nine yards. Very Mormon. And Mormons are instructed to have lots of kids. We were very Mormon. They, my parents were very good at um, doing that part. There were six of us. Kat's dad was an oil engineer. So he traveled a lot for work. So he actually, I think he had a big part to do in fracking. He, he would travel down to the States. Um, he did a lot of work all around Alberta, and he would go to the Middle East a lot and do whatever it is oil engineers do while they're working out there on the fields. And her mom was at home taking care of all the kids. That was definitely her job, yeah. No, she was uh, yeah, a stay-at-home mom. She was there, home with us. Kat recalled one of the years when they celebrated her dad's birthday. We celebrated his 42nd birthday. We had a spaghetti dinner. Whew, sorry, my heart starts to race when I talk about it. We um, had forgotten to buy him presents. So we like went to like the local drugstore and like I bought him a cheese grater because that's what every dad wants for their 42nd birthday is a cheese grater. Actually, funny story. I never thought I'd see that cheese grater again. And then one day my brother went to my mom's house and brought home a bunch of stuff and he brought that cheese grater home and I have it now hanging on my wall. So we celebrated his birthday. As far as I can remember, it was a, a really good time. The next day I woke up, went to school. Every, everything was normal, just like any other day. But when I came home, I got off the bus and I realized that my dad's car was in the driveway. And my dad was never home before we got home. Like He was like a workaholic. Some would probably say he was definitely never home before six and he, his car was in the driveway. So like right away, I knew something was not right. So I get in, open the door, go to the front door, open it. And um, my mom's friend is there and she looks kind of frazzled. We make eye contact. I'm like, uh, what are you, what are you doing here? <laughs> and she was like, well, your dad's in the hospital. He was having trouble breathing. Your mom um, had to take him in. Everything's going to be fine. I'm just going to be here to take care of you guys while your, your dad's in the hospital. I was like a very anxious kid and that, that really alarmed me. I was very shaken up by that. Even though she was saying everything was okay, just the way that she was acting was very weird. She was like cleaning the house and just kind of erratic. She told us that we would just wait for my mom to call and give us an update about how my dad was doing. So we waited and waited and waited what felt like an eternity. And every time the phone rang, I would run over to it and pick up and I would pick it up shaking just in, with anticipation and hoping it was my mom saying that everything was okay and that my dad and her would be coming home. But that, unfortunately, that call did not come around probably eight o'clock that night. My mom finally came home. She had another friend with her and you could just tell there was something really wrong. And my five-year-old brother, 
well, went bounding down the hall towards her. And she's like, is he dead? Is he dead? And she's like, and she laughed at him. And so in that moment, I thought like, oh God, okay, he's, he's fine. She wouldn't laugh if he was dead. Like everything's fine. So she called all six of his kids into the um, living room of our home. She sat us down and um, proceeded to tell us that he, she'd brought my dad in. who's having trouble breathing and that his heart had stopped two times and they were able to bring him back two times. But the third time it stopped, they weren't able to bring him back and that he had died. The room went quiet and my sister stood up and screamed, daddy, no. And then ran out of the room. And then we all just kind of collapsed into a heap and just all started crying. How does a 10 year old child handle the sudden unexpected loss of her father? I think at first it was pretty unbelievable. Like I had tears and I I knew in my head what had happened and that he wasn't coming home. But every part of my heart really, really wished that this was just a joke. I thought that they would, you know, be a really mean and cruel joke, but I was just hoping and praying that it was a joke, that he would come through the door again and that the reality wouldn't be that he was dead. And it was, it was a wild experience too, because you know, you go from like the day before we were celebrating his birthday and everything was fine. Life was fine. And then the next day, everything changed in, in a heartbeat. The two years prior, my, my grandparents had died and we had gone to go to their funerals. And I knew that there was going to be a viewing um, at each one. And so I was like mentally preparing myself for his viewing because I knew it was coming. And I was like really nervous about it, that I was going to have to to see him in his casket. And then when the day finally came, it was, it was very surreal because he just looked like he was sleeping. After that life went on for Kat, her five siblings and their now single mother. After a couple of weeks, she went back to school. I milked that as long as I could. I probably could have gone back sooner, but I definitely was going to take this opportunity to miss as much school as I possibly could. Almost immediately, too, I tried to just shove the feelings down that I was feeling, like just having no way to to process them. I remember like laughing at his funeral. I didn't cry. And that kind of carried on the weeks to follow. And so it came to a point where my mom's like, you're fine. You can go back to school. You need to go back to school. And Kat's mom was also navigating this new life of being single. She definitely has like an undiagnosed personality disorder. And that definitely played into how she handled everything after he died. She was at first really sad. You know, she had just been widowed with six kids and it was a very traumatic thing to have happen and a big weight to have put on your shoulders. And so I think the first couple of weeks she was handling it okay. She was somewhat present. Yeah, she was, she was, she, it seemed like she was there with us. And then after a couple of weeks, that's when everything changed. And she realized she had some newfound freedom from her, from her husband. <laughs> and she's got really um, into the drinking scene and going to bars and just separating herself from us. You know, it was, it was too much for her to, to handle. And so she really just started pulling away from us and dating. But Kat was still missing that big part of her life. I desperately wanted a dad. And so I wanted her to find somebody 
who would be a dad. But the men that she would pick, like her first boyfriend after he died, she met at the bar, which is fine. Many people meet at the bar, but he would go to jail on the weekends because he, I think he just had so many DUIs. They would date during the week. They would have a Friday night date night, and then she would drop him off at jail and then pick him up on Sunday. And so he also didn't have a place to stay because he kept going to jail. So her solution to that was that he would move in with us and he would be our nanny and live with us. I wanted him to be my dad. (laughs) Or not to be my dad, but to fill that void. But he was not at all interested in that. And understandably so. But he was really mean. He was abusive verbally. He would yell at us a lot. He was just very... Yeah, just really mean. And so I would try to hang around him, but he would insult me, belittle me. Yeah, he was just really resentful, even though he was supposed to be our quote unquote nanny, Um, which having kids of my own, I cannot imagine inviting a strange man into my home and having him nanny my children. Like it's, it's wild that she would do that. But that was pretty soon after he died. And then she started to experience anxiety. I started to have just debilitating panic attacks. So I was super worried that my mom was going to die or that my mom was going to abandon us. It started off somewhat small, but very quickly progressed to like, she would leave the room and like the walls would close in. My chest would get tight. I'd have to go find her to make sure she was coming back. So it started to become a real big problem in, in both our lives. It's very difficult to have a child who you can't leave alone. And yeah, and it was something I I just could not control. It was very, uh, very upsetting. But Kat's concerns were kind of confirmed by her mom's behavior. Having my dad die and her now having no spouse to be accountable to, she started really resenting us children. We became very quickly a burden to her. And she would tell us that she, you know, we were a burden and that she didn't want us around and she wished she didn't have so many kids. And she like sat us down and told us that and, So she was showing signs she was not happy with the situation. And so I think that further played into my my anxiety about everything. And at the same time, they left the Mormon church. So my dad was the main driving force for us being in Mormonism. My parents got into Mormonism together. They both converted as adults and then they proceeded to have, you know, six kids. And then about a year before my dad died is when my mom... I started questioning the Mormon faith. She couldn't find her testimony. The the church just wasn't true to her. So she actually stopped going to church about a year before my dad died. So we were going to church still because of him. And then when he died and she was no longer part of the Mormon church, then we just all stopped being Mormon. We stopped going to church completely at that point. And then you found another religion. Yes. How did that happen? Because I was having these panic attacks, my mom was talking to one of her friends one day and was, you know, explaining what was going on with me. And her friend was a Scientologist and she had had great success in Scientology. And so she had told my mom that she thinks that it could really help us. And my mom was like, yeah, okay, maybe we'll give that a try. Churches are called um, in Scientology organizations and they shorten them to orgs. So there was no orgs in um, Alberta at the time. 
And so my mom's friend, she was actually doing services, Scientology services down in LA at the Celebrity Center International. And so that's where my mom decided that we, her and I, so she picked me out of all, all the kids because I was having such a hard time that her and I would go to Celebrity Center and we would go check it out. Just her and I, which was amazing to have like this one-on-one time with my mom. It was like, I was just ecstatic when she told me that I'd be going on a trip alone with her. I'd been to the States, but never any like place like LA, you know, where there was palm trees and stuff like that. So like, it was just like, so exciting. And the Celebrity Center is in Hollywood. And so once I found that out, I was like, oh my God, this is great. Like it was just a dream come true. It was very exciting. You're picturing yourself being surrounded by all the famous people you see on TV and in the movies probably. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Had you even flown in an airplane before this? I had not. No, this was my first time flying an airplane and I was so terrified. I'd always had like anxiety about it, but we survived and actually funny stories. While we were flying, a flight attendant started like digging in the overhead bin above me. She was very persistent about it. And then she looked at me and was like, don't worry. We're just trying. There's a ticking sound. We're just trying to figure out what it is. Yeah. <laughs> the, sorry. The, the plane's making a funny noise. We have to check it out. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was terrifying. But we made it. In your mind as a child, what did you think the purpose was for this trip to the U.S.? Or did your mom tell you why you were going? Yeah, she did. So she she very briefly explained Scientology to me. Um, and she didn't really have a grasp of it herself. So just what she knew, just basically that there, there have counseling services that she thinks could help. And so we were going to go down there and, and try and do that and see if we could help with these panic attacks. Can you describe what is Celebrity Center International? Celebrity Center International, it's actually, it was an old apartment building that the Church of Scientology bought in like the 1950s or 60s and renovated it to be this beautiful, it's beautifully renovated org. So there is also a, a hotel attached to it. It's called the Manor Hotel. So there are a number of floors that are just dedicated to the Manor Hotel. And you can only stay there if you're doing Scientology services. And then the rest of the building is course rooms and auditing rooms and all the things that you need to do Scientology. They have a restaurant. You don't have to leave to go anywhere. You don't have to leave to go to your room or do your courses and stuff like that. And so you're when you're there, you're there at Celebrity Center. The grounds are beautifully manicured. They are beautiful. It's just a beautiful building. It's very beautiful. Did you see any celebrities while you were there? So the first trip, I don't think I saw any celebrities, but over my extended time there, I saw um, John Travolta, Kirstie Alley, Jenna Elfman, Jason Lee. I talked to Leah Remini. We were both at the reception desk in the lobby. She was very nice. I remember looking at her and I'm like, oh my God, that looks like the girl from Saved by the Bell. And I was like, there's no possible way that's the girl from Saved by the Bell. Like, no possible way. And it, there was totally a way because it was totally her. So you got there and you get the sales pitch, so to speak, based on a personality test. Yes. How did they do all of that? What happened? You take a personality test and everybody takes it when they come in to do services. And basically the, the whole point of this personality test is it sounds fun and like you're going to find out what your personality is. But really what they're doing is they're trying to find something called your ruin. So the thing in your life that is causing you great upset and that is stopping you from moving forward and stuff in life. And so 
you'll take this test and then they'll read the results and they'll be like, oh, you're really good in this area, but oh my God, this area is really bad. And so here is this, you know, course that can help you better this so that you can improve your life and, and so on and so forth. How convenient that they have a course for whatever problem you might have. It's great. Yes. <laughs> and you don't even have to leave the grounds, the campus as it were. <laughs> my mom got a huge life insurance policy payout from my father dying, which was supposed to go to raising us kids and keeping a roof over our head. And Scientology got wind of that. So they have people there called registers and they shorten that to regs. And so the regs whole job is to sell you Scientology courses and auditing. And they won't just sell you like, here, this is this one course that you could do now. And then when you finish that course, come back and we'll have you purchase another course. Their whole job is like there is to get as much money out of you as possible. So they actually were able to get at least a hundred grand out of my mom while she was there. So she prepaid for multiple courses for her to train to become an auditor. Why don't you go ahead and explain what is auditing? Okay. So auditing is basically their version of counseling. So you have an auditor and then you're yourself and you'll go into a room and this room is usually pretty small, very um, plain. They don't want to have any distractions. So there's like little pictures on the walls and stuff like that. And you're sitting across the desk from your auditor and they have something called an e-meter. Now an e-meter is this little device, this little machine that will sit in front of the auditor and you will not see the interface. So the interface is facing the auditor and it has a couple dials on it. And then it also has a needle that goes back and forth. And the auditor is trained to read that needle. There are um, a wire connected to the emitter that comes out of both sides and it's connected to these cans. And so you as a person being audited will hold these cans in each hand. And so the idea is that the emitter has a current lower than a um, nine volt battery that when you're holding the cans, you'll complete the circuit and it'll be going around and through you. And so they believe that you have something called a reactive mind. And so the reactive mind is the part of your mind that stores all the bad things that have ever happened to you, all the painful memories, anything bad that's ever happened to you is stored in your reactive mind. And your reactive mind is actually the thing that causes all the problems that you have in this world. And so the goal of auditing is to get rid of your reactive mind. So as you are holding the cans, it's sending the volt, the nine volt current through your body. You don't feel it. But supposedly, if you have a thought in your mind, it will create mass and that will disrupt the current that is flowing through you. And so the auditor who has the interface facing them on the e-meter will see the needle start to move. And so that's when they will um, know that there's a thought that you're having that they have to take up in session. It just sounds like a rudimentary polygraph or a biofeedback machine. Exactly what it's been compared to. Yes. That it's like a lie detector machine. So I did do auditing first. I think we were there for a week. I did do auditing to address the panic attacks that I was having. And it helped. It actually, I don't remember any of the questions asked or um, any of the, the things that I said, but it ended up actually really helping pretty quickly, actually. Like when I first started, when they first called me back to... Um, do the auditing. My mom had already gone back 
to do her auditing. So I was left alone in the waiting room and I just, again, had a panic attack. The walls were closing in on me. I was just thinking I was going to be homeless in LA and like my mom's not going to come back and I need to figure out what I'm going to do to survive this because she's not coming back. Like that was just my whole thought process as I like resigned myself to being homeless. And I was like, okay, I guess we're doing this. Uh, Then my auditor came back and then we were able to proceed with the auditing and, and it helped significantly. When you get the, got the feeling that it helped, do you think, I mean, it, it seems like just talking about this problem or explaining this problem to another person who's interested in hearing it, it, it seems like that in itself would be a help. Do you think that's what was happening or was it the actual, whatever these courses were doing? 100%. 100%. I think it's because I was just addressing what needed to be addressed and then just talking about it. So it was kind of like therapy, but just yeah. really super expensive therapy and probably someone that wasn't trained in therapy. No, no, definitely. It, anybody who is an auditor, they go through lots of training, but it's Scientology training to become an auditor. L. Ron Hubbard wrote how to do it. And so it's definitely not accredited or uh, supervised or anything like that. So you were helped in some way by it and you guys went back home. Was it, was your life different then? I mean, it was significantly helped because I did, wasn't having these panic attacks anymore. And it was just kind of this cool thing. Like I was part of this like cool club. Like I was a Scientologist nobody had ever heard of Scientology. Like anybody I talked to my friends and stuff like that, they'd never heard of Scientology. And so it was just this kind of this cool thing that I was a part of now that nobody else was a part of. In actuality, it really, since there was no orgs and we knew nobody else who was a Scientologist, like it was just this cool thing that we went to LA to do. And then we came back home and it wasn't a part of our daily life. So life just went on as normal. Okay. So you guys, Went back a second time, you and your mom, and then you went back a third time down to Los Angeles. And by this time, you were 13 years old. What happened on that third trip? Oh, boy. Okay. Yes. So, yes, we went back. We had gone down there, and I had started a course called the Key to Life course. It's a huge course that has like 45 pounds worth of books and it defines every word (laughs) in the English language, basically. And so the whole point of this course is to learn every word in the English language. So I was doing that course. I just started. So you spend almost all of your day doing coursework. So you're on course from like nine to to 12. And then there's like a hour lunch break. And then you come back from like one to six. And then there's a hour dinner break, and then you go back from like seven to nine or something like that. So your, your whole day is spent in the course room. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels 
And thankfully, that's all backed up by science, and all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature, and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what, or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what, or going to cookunity.com what. We all enjoy a little mystery. Every other week, one strange thing presents forgotten stories from America's newspaper archives. They all have something in common, a single element that can't quite be explained. Join us on One Strange Thing, and you'll hear about a man who was literally stricken with genius. A 21st century child who remembered piloting a World War II bomber. A mysterious, unidentifiable blob in Texas. And then there was the lizard man stalking through small-town South Carolina. From cryptids and disappearances to modern-day miracles, one strange thing brings you stories that are very real and just a little otherworldly. Subscribe now, wherever you listen. first couple days that's what I was I was doing I was doing this course I have to say it was really boring I was not enjoying myself yeah I would I was gonna say for for a kid who previously wanted to stay out of school as much as possible this <laughs> was like school from morning to night that it must have been terrible yes it yeah it was it was very demanding I didn't like it too much but again I like the idea that I was you know in LA and 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 with my mom so it was worth it to get the time that I had with my mom, it was worth it to sit through like 12 hours of course time a day. 
probably around like the third or fourth day, I was taking a break with my mom. We were in the Rose Garden Cafe, which is this little cafe that they have there on the grounds of Celebrity Center. My mom and I were just chatting and I they had this like sparkling juice. This is my biggest memory of that cafe, this sparkling juice that they didn't sell up in Canada. So like it was, I exclusively got it at the Rose Garden Cafe. And so we were sitting there uh, discussing our day and I was drinking this juice. And then this woman walks up to me and my mom, she herself was pretty young. She was probably about 17. And she's like, hey, do you guys want to come down uh, downstairs and watch a movie? And I was like, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll watch a movie, you know. And my mom's like, yeah, yeah, okay, let's, let's go do it. So we had enough time left on our break before we had to get back to course to go down and watch their movie. So we go downstairs to the basement of the Celebrity Center and they have um, this, it was really cool. Again, just enchanted by this place at this point. This movie theater that had like red velvet all over the walls and red velvet seats and like this big screen, which I do believe even had like a red velvet curtain that would open when you would start the movie. And so we sit down and she hits play and it starts to talk about the Sea Organization and the Sea Organization and for short, we'll call it the Sea Org. And when you say Sea Org, it's you're saying S-E-A, like the big body of water, right? Yes, correct. So the Sea Org is a paramilitary group that is mirrored after the Navy. Elrond Hubbard was a naval man in the during World War II. And so he brought a lot of what he learned in the Navy to the Sea Organization. He founded that in 1967. He bought three boats and took his most loyal followers and headed to the sea. He was a big tax evader. And so um, he was trying to get away from the law. Basically, he had made a whole bunch of money with Dianetics at this point in time. And they had said that, you know, you got to start paying taxes. And so Elvin Hubbard actually said that, you know, the best way to make money is to start a religion because it's tax free. And so he didn't want to have to pay those taxes that the IRS was trying to get him to pay. So he took, took Scientology to the seas so he could be on international waters so that he would not have to worry about any governments trying to tell him what he needs to do and what he needs to pay. And he actually did a lot of developing of Scientology while he was on those boats. So the Sea Org is no longer at sea. They were able to eventually bring it to land. And so now the Sea Org is now the people who keep Scientology running. They're the most dedicated workers out there. They live and breathe Scientology. They live in Scientology buildings. They work day and night. Scientology feeds them, clothes them, and you dedicate your whole entire life to them. When you went to watch this movie, were they trying to get you to join the Sea Org? First, I didn't think so. At first, I was like... We watched the movie and I was like, wow, like, and it was like a, like a military recruitment video, like trying to make it sound really appealing. They made it seem like it was just this really cool thing to do. And I, I didn't actually at that time realize why they were showing it to me. I thought that it was just something that they like to show people because they had this cool theater. So then the, the lady comes in who had originally showed us the video and she's like, can you guys come talk to me about the the movie you just watched? And I was like, yeah, sure. So me and my mom go back into this office. So this office that she brought us into, it's in the basement of the celebrity center. And it is just has a desk, just white walls there on one side of the desk. 
the Seorg lady, and then me and my mom were on the other side of the desk, and the door was to our backs. So we go into this little room, and she closes the door, and she's like, so what'd you think? And I was like, that's really cool. Thank you for being a Sea Org member. Like, that seems like a really important job. So cool. And she's like, well, would you want to join? And I was like, no, no, I don't think so. Thank you. Like, I'm, I'm 13. I don't, I don't live here. Like, no, thank you. And I, I was a big people pleaser at the time. I kind of still am. So just trying to be very polite. So she was like, okay, well, um, would you be willing to come back and talk to me? after course tonight. And I was like, yeah, sure. I can do that. That's, that sounds fine. I'll come back to this room after I get off course. And so me and my mom leave and we go off to course. And then I, by myself, go back to that room and start talking with her. Why didn't your mom go with you? (sighs) Good question. I don't think she cared. I think she was in her own little world. I don't think she was so disconnected from, from me. And I remember that trip, her just being like, she was just there. Her body was in the room, but she wasn't there. <laughs> so I go back and she starts asking me, you know, why, why I don't want to join the Sea Org. And at the time, again, I was thinking this was crazy. Like I'm 13 in Scientology. They believe that you are a Thetan and a Thetan basically is your soul. So you have a body. And you are your thing. And so this is just your body for this lifetime, but your thing can never die. So your thing has been around for billions of years before this. It's going to go on for billions of years after this, just this lifetime. This is the body that I inhabit, but my thing is very old. So she starts asking me what, why, why don't you want to join the Sea Org? And I was like, well, I'm 13, you know? And she's like, well, you're not 13. Your body's 13. Your thetans billions of years old. Like your, your body is the only thing that's 13 here, you know? And I was like, yeah, I, I guess. Um, and so immediately, like every time I would use that excuse, quote unquote, that I was 13, she'd always be like, that's, you're not 13, just your body. That's just your body's age. Just heavy duty recruitment started to, to try to get me to join the Sea Org. I'm picturing someone who signs up for the three-day, two-night stay at a resort, but they have to listen to the 90-minute sales pitch, (laughs) high-pressure pitch, you know, to to buy the timeshare. But that that happens to adults. So, and here they are trying to recruit you as just a young kid. Yes, and I was by myself. My mom was not there doing anything to help me with that. And so they believe, so in Scientology, they believe that mankind is in a dwindling spiral and we have this, but a breath of a moment in time here and within Scientology to stop the dwindling spiral that humanity has been in. And we have to do everything we can right now to save the planet because it is about to go to shit and we are the only people who can do something about it. So that also was brought in very heavy, very quickly that not only am I a billion year old Thetan, but also the fate of the world depends on me joining the Sea Org. Like, how could I know this, have this knowledge of Scientology and and how much good it can do for the world and then turn my back and walk away? And 
that was very heavily, heavily pushed on me that I would just be a piece of shit, basically, if I didn't do this, if I didn't give of myself to save mankind right now, what kind of a person am I if I if I do that? Standard part of a high pressure sales pitch is the urgency. Got to act now. Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. And so the whole recruitment cycle took two days. So it was me going to course and then me going back to that room. Anytime I had a free moment. You must have just dreaded walking in that room knowing what was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I, I did dread it. It was, yes, this had turned like this, the Scientology experience that I, that I loved being with my mom, being in Hollywood, all this stuff suddenly became this just torturous situation that I, that I was in. And I, and I didn't have a voice to say no, like I wish I could have been strong enough in that moment to just be like, no, I'm not coming back. But I didn't because I'm a people pleaser. And I was 13. I was 13. I was in the eighth grade when all this went down. And so it started off with just the one woman giving me the whole spiel and how I need to do this. I need to do it right now. I need to save the planet. Nothing else is as important as this. And then she brought in a second, an older gentleman to come help in the recruiting fun. I don't know if they were doing like a good cop, bad cop kind of thing. Like she was very pushy, but he was more like, I just can't believe you wouldn't want to do this. I just can't believe you wouldn't want to save the world. And like, I remember one time, like I was like, just like, no, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do it. I was like, let me go home and think about it. I'll just go home and think about it. How does that sound? I'll go home and think about it. No salesman wants to hear that response. (laughs) Nope. He sure did not. Yeah. No. And he's like, I just picture you going home. I just picture you going home and going sit in the corner and putting your head in your hands and just thinking about it. Like, how stupid is that? How stupid is that? And I was like, I guess that's, that's kind of stupid. But again, as a grown up now, I'm like, yeah, I should have definitely gone home and sat in a corner with my head in my hand and thought about it for a fucking second. But again, that wasn't their goal. Their goal was not to send me home. Their goal was to get me to sign their contract and get me to stay and join the Sea Org. And so after two days of that, where I just felt very beaten down and I just wanted it to stop. I just wanted them to stop hounding me. And so I looked at them and I said, okay, I'll do it. And of course they were very, very excited. Like, yes, great. Okay. And then like in my heart of hearts, I was like, oh my God, I hope my mom stops this. And so I told them, I was like, I, I don't know. We'll just have to see what my mom says. We'll have to see if she's okay with it. And they look at me and they go, your mom's not gonna be a problem. Don't worry about your mom. We're going to handle your mom. Don't worry about her. I was like, Oh, good. <laughs> but again, I was like that, that, that answer devastated me. I just, I just, the feeling that I felt in that moment of like utter, just giving myself over to it after having just everything, all of my autonomy taken from me. Like I'll, I'll never forget that feeling. I don't think I could ever accurately describe it, but I'll never forget how that felt in that moment. That night I went to course and I remember not being able to focus at all on course because I had just made this lifelong commitment to them. And they said that we'll call your mom down at that point and then we'll, t- we'll talk to her. So that night called my mom down. And again, I can remember this so clearly her sitting next to me and me just telling her that, you know, I, I really want to join. And she looked at me, she looked at the recruiters and she said, okay. You can join. I was heartbroken. It was very, 
very heartbroken that she didn't do anything about it. Did you understand that this meant that your mom would be going back home and you would be staying? Yeah. So I did understand that what this entailed is that, yes, my mom would go home. I would stay. I would never see my friends again, or I would see them just when I came back to visit, if I could ever come visit, I wouldn't see my family again. This would be it. This was my new life now that I am now going to be joining the Sea Org. And this is what I'd be doing. So this seems like the actual playing out of what you had been fearing, your mom leaving you. (laughs) Yeah. She had to sign over guardianship of me. So they found somebody who, a Sea Org member who didn't have anybody who they were the guardian of yet. She signed over guardianship of me as a technicality so that um, she could legally leave me in a different country so she could leave me there. So not only is she saying verbally, it's okay, I'm going to leave. She took the legal action to give you to someone else. Yeah. Yep, she did. Without hesitating. She signed the paperwork. So what exactly is this contract that you signed? So it's the Seward contract. They, again, leave you a thing. And so you sign a contract committing yourself to the Sea organization for your next billion years because they believe that you're going to fulfill this term. You're going to be in the Sea Org this lifetime. You're going to die. And then you're going to come back to a different body and you have 21 years to get your shit figured out and realize that you're a Scientologist and that you were a Sea Org member And then you get yourself back into an org and then you sign another contract. And so you're committing yourself to the next billion years to the Sea Org. They have you sign that. (laughs) So I, as a 13 year old, signed my soul over basically for a billion years to the Church of Scientology. So we did a whole bunch of paperwork and all that stuff. And my mom, yep, she signed over guardianship and she got on a plane and she went back home and she left me in L.A. So what was the next day like? How did that, how did you start this period? Before you become a Sea Org member, you have to do a program called the Estates Project Force or EPF for short. So it's basically their boot camp. So you have to do five courses. And when you're not on course, you have five hours a day where you do course and then you do 10 hours a day of hard manual labor. Hubbard had said that the EPF should have, yeah, Maximum amount of course study, maximum amount of work, manual labor, and then minimal amount of downtime. So that equated to 15-hour days, seven days a week, until you're able to finish the program, the EPF. And you have to run everywhere. So if you're caught walking, you'll get in big trouble. Like, it's really meant to be just... Just complete control. Yes. Yes, exactly. So the day after my mom left, we had to do all the paperwork to get me routed on to the EPF. As I'm doing that, they're asking me all these questions because they're filling out all their paperwork and they um, look at me and they go, hey, uh, Catherine, what's your social security number? And I was like, "Uh, I don't actually have one because I'm Canadian. Um, I don't have a social security number. So the whole room goes quiet. They all kind of look at each other and they're like, uh... What do we do? And they look at me and they go, 
you know what? That's okay. Actually, you know what? That's fine. Your mom will just have to get you a social security number um, and you'll just work for free and, until you get a social security number. Now, mind you, Sea Org members do not make a lot of money. So they make $50 a week and then that's tax. So it comes out to be like $48. So you don't, you don't make a lot of money at all. <laughs> but I had absolutely no income and no money because I did not have a social security number. But they were still kind enough to let me work for them for free. <laughs> this sounds a lot like prison. Yeah. Felt like that, too. They actually have security guards. Like, they, they keep track of you. Like, if you leave the grounds, people will come find you. Overwhelmed by investing? If you're anything like us, the hardest part is getting started. That's why we created the Investing for Beginners podcast. Our goal is to help simplify money so it can work for you. We invite guests to demystify investing. At least try to be setting aside like the minimum 10% into the 401k. We'll teach you the basics of the market. Yeah, I think compound interest should be at the start of any discussion about investing. And We've had investment professionals who teach in a simple way. A valuation-driven bear market. You know, we, we haven't really seen yet, and I think everyone's thinking about it, but we haven't really seen yet. Our Q&A episodes feature questions from listeners just like you. So what do you think about the situation with ETBI, which is Activision? I'm Dave Ahern. And I'm Andrew Sather. And we hope you join us on the Investing for Beginners podcast. On the Investing for Beginners podcast. Have you ever wondered why we call French fries French fries? Or why something is the greatest thing since sliced bread? There are answers to those questions. Everything Everywhere Daily is a podcast for curious people who want to learn more about the world around them. Every day, you'll learn something new about things you never knew you didn't know. Subjects include history, science, geography, mathematics, and culture. If you're a curious person and want to learn more about the world you live in, just subscribe to Everything Everywhere Daily wherever you cast your pod. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s. Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the hosts of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field, and we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. The first night there, I was assigned to the unit that the church had just bought the building across the street from the Celebrity Center. And so it was uh, an old apartment building. And they were renovating it for Sea Org members to live there eventually. So it was super run down. And so we would spend yeah, 10 hours a day doing demo work. So the first night when I was delivered to my unit, they were actually tearing carpet off of the stairs. That was my first like night of really getting to it was, was tearing carpet off of stairs. So that was kind of your days now. 10 hours of hard labor, 5 hours of studying. Yeah, that's just it. <laughs> Whole existence, seven days a week. So that turns out to be 105 hours a week that you're working for free 
as a 13 year old <laughs> for the church. Were you able to talk to your mom at all during this time? One of the advantages of being a young body <laughs> was that I got to call my mom a little bit more than everybody else. I think it was like one or two times a week or something like that. The first time I went to go call my mom, the EPFIC, so that's the Estates Project Force in charge, the person who was in charge of just everybody on the EPF, brought me down to the phone booth that they have in the basement of the Celebrity Center. And he's like, okay, here, you can go call your mom. But before you do, I want to let you know that we record every call coming in and out of here. So anything you say or tell your mom, we're going to know. So if you let her know anything that's upsetting or anything that is going on here that could potentially quote unquote upset her, we're going to know. And that's going to be a big problem. So don't tell her anything basically. And I remember that, that first call I, I was shaking. Actually, I was so terrified that I would say something to her that would trigger whoever was listening to me to get mad at me. And then I would get in trouble. I just remember using, I was really up tone. I was really chipper. I was just trying to sound great. Just using kind of like one word answers because I was just terrified that I was going to get in trouble for something I said to her. And so every conversation after that was very limited in what I could say to her because I knew that they were listening. Can you talk about the one day when you were emptying the garbage? I was emptying the garbage. I was on the um, unit that worked on the grounds at CC Celebrity Center. And I was emptying the garbage and like I had been having so much turmoil the whole time I was there. I was not having a good time. I really missed home. I really had just not felt good. I did not feel good in my body. I was not having a good time. So in this particular morning, I was emptying the garbage and this like breeze had like blown across the courtyard and the smell that it, that I smelled, <laughs> I don't know. In that moment, I felt good. I felt like in this moment, I was like, okay, I'm going to be okay. Things are going to be okay. You can do this. You, you can become a Sea Org member. You've got this. So um, also part of that job was cleaning the bathrooms. They had these um, bathrooms outside on the grounds. And so I was in the bathroom cleaning. I was in the back stall. It was just me. And the bathrooms weren't open, so nobody should have been in there. There was a sign on there saying that the bathrooms weren't open. And um, I hear the big heavy door, the outside door open. And then I hear somebody walk in and I hear the door shut. And immediately, just intuitively, I knew that something was not right. So I stop what I'm doing. I go and I look around the, the stall door and I see it's one of my fellow EPFers. He is a giant man, <laughs> at least six foot four in his 40s. And I look at him and I'm like, hey, uh, what's up? And he's just looking at me really weird. And he is slowly walking back towards me. I've got my back to the back of the bathroom. He's like, Catherine, because I went by Catherine at the time. I'm in love with you and I want to have sex with you. And I was like, what? What? He's like, I'm in love with you and I want to have sex with you. And as he's saying this to me, he's coming in closer and closer and closer. And I'm backing back as far as I can. And my back hits the bathroom wall. And as his big arms come in to grab me, I thank God I'm so grateful. I was able to duck down underneath his arm and then run past him and run out of the bathroom. 
to get away from him. So in Scientology, and in the Sea Org specifically, you're not allowed to have sex before you're married. And also, if you get caught, even like if somebody even perceives that you're like into somebody or you like somebody, you can get into big trouble. So I was super worried (laughs) that I was going to get in trouble for him coming on to me. So as I'm running, I run to the lobby of Celebrity Center and um, they had a paging system to get a hold of the EPF IC. So I like I'm shaking and telling the receptionist, like, please, please, it's an emergency. Please page the EPF IC. She's like, okay, okay, I am. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I didn't know what to do. Like, so you're supposed to be running everywhere and you were supposed to be working. There is no downtime. And idleness is seen as one of the worst things you could do. You're going to get yelled at. You're going to get in trouble, belittled. And here I am in this lobby sitting down. I'm also amongst the public Scientologists, which you're not supposed, they're not supposed to see you sitting. And I'm just trembling, just waiting for the EPF IC. And I'm I'm worried that I'm going to get in trouble because I'm not working. And I'm worried that I'm going to be in trouble that I pulled in this guy's sexual advances and that I'm going to get in trouble for it. And that if I don't tell that I will also get in trouble for it. Finally, after 15 or 20 minutes, he shows up and he comes in and he's like not happy with me. He looks so fucking annoyed that I interrupted whatever the fuck he was doing. He he's like, what? What's wrong? And so I told him exactly what had happened. He's like, oh, that's it. <sighs> OK, well, I'll handle it. Go back to work. And I was like, uh, <laughs> oh, OK. So he he did nothing. And I had to go back to work with the guy. They did switch him into another unit. So he was not in the same unit as me, but we were still both on the EPF together. And I avoided him like the plague. He scared the crap out of me. Like I was not interested in having another encounter with him again. (laughs) I was really stressed out and I had a lot of troubles eating. So my anxiety was just through the roof all the time. So much pressure. And so I I was having a really hard time eating and I couldn't keep my weight up. And again, I was really stressed out. And so I actually stopped getting my period almost right off the bat. Like I was just very unhealthy and very much struggling. There was a fellow EPFer who, who noticed that I was not eating and had talked to me about it. And he's like, well, if you don't start eating, then I'm going to have to write a knowledge report on you, which is they have a reporting system. So everybody you work with is watching what you're doing. And if you do anything that is not what you're supposed to be doing, they have to report you to ethics. And if they don't report you, then they will get in trouble along with you because they knew about you doing something that wasn't right and they didn't do anything about it. So that added also a whole new level of of stress because anything I did that if it wasn't per policy would be reported and there was eyes and ears everywhere looking to to report you if you were doing something wrong. So I was having such a hard time eating this one guy, he's like, okay, well, I'm going to write a knowledge report on you. And I was like, okay, you know, what? actually, I'd appreciate that because I, I need some help. I would really love some help. You know, I'm really having a hard time. So he writes a knowledge report on me. I believe it was the next day. I get called back by the ethics officer. He has me sit down in this chair and he sits on the desk in front of me and he goes, so you're not eating? I was like, uh, no, I'm having it. And then he cuts me off and he goes, well, let me just tell you that if you're not going to eat, then we're going to have to have somebody sit with you and they're going to have to force feed you like a baby. Is that what you want? I was like, no, 
no, I guess I don't want that. (laughs) He's like, good. Well, if you don't eat, then that's what's going to happen. And so then he sent me on my merry way. He didn't help me. I still couldn't eat. I was still struggling. But then there was this extra level of fear that if I was perceived to not be getting better, that someone else would write a knowledge report on me. And then I would have somebody following me around and making me eat like a baby. The stress was just like, I can feel it as I'm talking about it now. It was just so much stress and so much pressure to perform. And again, I was just a child. So it took me seven months to complete the EPF. Supposedly, it's supposed to take you about two weeks. But I was such a brand new Scientologist when I joined the Sea Org. Elmer Hubbard made up a whole language for Scientology. So they have hundreds of hundreds of words that I had to learn that I'd never learned before. I'm already just a 13-year-old with a 13-year-old education doing these courses made by a well-established science fiction author who has a wide vocabulary, much bigger than mine, plus made up all these Scientology words. So it took me a very long time to learn all the words and get through these courses. So something that should have taken me two weeks took me seven months to complete. But I did finally complete the courses and I did graduate from the EPF and become a Sea Org member. That must have been a really happy day for you. It was, but it was also like, so you had worked so hard to get to this point. And it basically, I just finished a course and then they're like, okay, cat graduated. And then it was off to, to the next thing. So there was no like celebration or um, anything like that. It was just like, now you're a Sea Org member. So now we have to get you doing that. I wish it had been a little bit more fun. <laughs> How does your life change now that you've become a Sea Org member? Now I don't have to do manual labor all the time. So the jobs in the Sea Org are called posts. And so I was not put on a post. I was an expediter. The um, division that I was in, that I was under, I would just run around and do whatever they needed me to do any extra expediting jobs that they needed me to do. I did that for two months. And so, and during this whole time that I'm there, I'm still not having a good time. (laughs) I'm still really missing my mom, really missing home and really caving under the pressure that it is to be a Sea Org member and a Scientologist. And so my mind starts going to like, I want to go home. I don't want to do this anymore. The lady who was my in charge while I was an expediter, I was starting to express to her that I was not enjoying this, that I wanted to go home, that I really miss my mom. The big big thing is I really miss my mom and I really badly wanted to get home to her. She was very nice. Like she was just really receptive to me. She, she was new to the Sea Org and I think she herself was trying to escape a bad situation And so she joined an even worse one, I guess. So the day I told her, you know, I I really don't want to do this anymore. I want to go home. She said, yeah, I think that's a good idea. I think you should go. And I'm so grateful for her. Like, I'm so grateful that she didn't give any pushback because I probably would have stayed. I would have, I would have stayed if she had put any effort into trying to keep me there. And so I'm super grateful that she was like, yeah, you should probably go home. I had to go through the 
the routing out check sheet. And they actually have something that you do. It's called a security check or a sec check. Basically, it's an interrogation and they ask you all these probing questions and they are trying to get dirt on you just in case you speak out later about Scientology. Then they have blackmail on you. So as a 14-year-old kid, like there was barely anything I had done in my life. I hadn't experienced much of anything. So they started asking questions like, you know, have you ever kissed somebody? At that point, I hadn't. Have you ever drank? Which I had (laughs) at that point. Just all these questions. And then they started to get more and more invasive. They started asking me like if I had ever fucked a dog. If, If I was going back to my room and pleasuring my roommates with dildos. And just all these like sexual questions. And I was so uncomfortable. It was like very upsetting. It was just another way of like, I felt super controlled, super dirty. And again, I was just this young kid and I'd never done any of these things. And I'm stuck in another room with somebody else just hounding me with all these questions. Eventually I did get through it. I have not fucked a dog. Just want everybody to know that. Then I was able to go home after I finished that, the security check. What was the reception like from your mom when you got home? Uh, She was pretty indifferent, maybe even a little upset that I came home. I think she felt like she didn't have any choice but to take me back. But she was definitely, I, I was just a problem for her. And so I think it was just another kid coming back into her life that she didn't want. And she was not very happy about that. So at this point, she had found herself another boyfriend and he was actually really anti-Scientology. And so at that point she was actually thinking that she wasn't going to be in Scientology anymore, that it was not a good, a good organization. And it's like, so like my mom to give me up (laughs) to Scientology. And then at some point in that nine months I was there she realized that she didn't want to be a Scientologist anymore, but she didn't come back for me. She didn't try to get me out. She didn't do any of that. She just let me stay. And so I think it was a problem that I came back and I was talking about Scientology and I was talking about it with her boyfriend and she did not like that. And you had missed school. Did you, um, did you just pick up where you left off or did you skip a year or how did that work? I came back and they let me, I didn't complete eighth grade but they moved me on to ninth grade. And so I just kind of went back, back into life as, as I had known it before, but everything was different. It was, I was different and it was really, really difficult to, to go back from what I had just been a part of and then join my peers who, you know, they had just been dealing with regular adolescent stuff, you know, and I just spent last nine months going through what I had. And so it was really difficult to integrate back into that. And I was told, you know, by the church that I I can't talk about it. I can't tell anybody about what happened, you know, because, you know, it was going to be trouble for me, which I mean, they couldn't have done anything really, but I didn't know that. Like I had just been so heavily brainwashed by them that I was, I was scared. I was very scared. I was scared for a, a number of years to say anything negative about the church. Hopefully they don't hear this podcast. <laughs> oh, I want them to hear it. I want them to hear it. I You're not worried anymore, huh? I'm not. No, I'm not at all worried. I want them to hear it. So at that time, you were you were experiencing depression, anxiety. Were you ever suicidal? Yes. Yes, I was. Yes, I definitely came down 
with anxiety, depression, and I had no words for it because in Scientology, anxiety and depression don't exist. They're very against that kind of stuff about they're against psychiatry and psychology. They believe that that is the root of all evil. And so Elmer and Hubbard said that, you know, anything to do with psychology and psychiatry is basically evil. So I, I had these PTSD, big feelings of depression, anxiety, and a very strong desire to die. I definitely wanted to, to not be around anymore. And then I would like creep into my mind, like, is this what they're talking about? That they said that, you know, I would want to die if I left, you know, the Sea Org, that I would be a nobody and I'd want to die. And I couldn't talk to my mom about it. So eventually my mom did leave that boyfriend and immediately fell right back into Scientology. And so she w- was of the mind that anxiety and depression didn't exist. And so like, I couldn't talk to her about it. And so I would just be stuck in these moments of just losing the will to live and then having to fight myself to not do anything about it. Yeah. And I, and I just couldn't talk to my mom about it and she would get mad at me. So I would start showing like, I would like be sleeping in longer. I would stay in my bedroom with the lights out and she would come in and turn the lights on and be like, you're just sad because you're listening to sad music and and you need to get up and do something. And just, you know, it was just really upset with me a lot of the time. And so I just had no place to go with it. And eventually you guys moved back to the United States, just not yes. to LA. Yeah. When I was 15 years old, we moved to Colorado, to Denver, where I am today. And so, so that's when she got super back into Scientology because there is an org here in Denver. And so she immediately hooked up with the org here and uh, started working for them, actually. But you did not get back into Scientology. I didn't. So they have something called a freeloader's debt. So if you are in the Sea Org or you're on staff and you ever leave before your contract's up, any course that I did, I did um, the five required courses plus an additional course, they charged me full price for those. So it was like $15,000 or something that I owed them. So I could not get back on lines or do any Scientology while I still had that freeloader's debt. Looking back now, I'm so grateful I had it <laughs> because I mean, I, I did not do any Scientology after that. Eventually you recovered, so to speak. What was it that enabled you to do that, to finally kind of get your life on track? You know, it has been a process for sure. A big thing that really helped me. So I got married and pregnant when I was 21. And so that in and of itself was just a big change. You know, I had this baby boy that like, I knew I was struggling so hard. I was drinking a lot. I was suicidal. I was doing drugs. I was doing anything I could to try to make myself feel better, just running headfirst into that abyss. And when I became pregnant, I knew that I had to change because I did not want to do this to my kid. Every part of me wanted to save him from the pain that I was feeling. And so I knew I had to start working on myself. Now, it took a while. <laughs> it definitely did. I got into counseling around the age of 26, my first round with that. And that's actually when I was diagnosed with PTSD, anxiety, and depression. And I was so scared to get help. I was so scared because of all the things that Scientology says about psychiatry and psychology. They say that if you walk into a counseling session, that they're going to lobotomize you and do electroshock like right away. (laughs) And so I, I was so scared of that. 
but I also knew that I, I had to get help. I needed to do something. I also knew at that point it was like learning a lot about Scientology. Education was actually a big thing. So hearing other people's stories and reading books and, and realizing that L. Ron Hubbard was just so full of shit and that he was a con man and that he and Scientology just leaves destruction <laughs> everywhere that they go. That really helped. And so that made me brave enough to be like, okay, so if all that stuff isn't true, then maybe it's not true about psychology. So I was finally able to start digging into that. And that really helped, actually. That was the first time I'd ever talked about my experience in Scientology and experience with my dad and all the stuff that happened in between. Things were not good at home when I got back with my mom. Just slowly starting to, to delve into that. What, what about medication? Does Scientology allow that at all? God, no. No. <laughs> no. So also another thing that was taught was that, you know, psychiatric drugs will cause you to be homicidal or suicidal. And that all mass shooters have been on antidepressants and anybody who's killed themselves has antidepressants in their system. And so I was terrified of that. But I knew that without them, I might do something to myself if I don't do something different. <laughs> and so I ended up actually taking an antidepressant and it really helped. It actually, it helped with the suicidal thoughts. They started to subside. Yeah, it does help when prescribed by, uh, you know, a, a medical professional. And it's amazing to me that I know childhood indoctrination is so effective but in this case, they only had you for less than a year. And yeah. yet they had you believing these things and scared to uh, to go against them. Yeah. And then I also had my mother reinforcing all that rhetoric in our True. house. Yeah. She yeah. was believing it. Did you ever talk to your mom and tell her what happened to you while you were there? I tried to a couple of times. When I got back initially, she didn't want to hear it. She just was not interested in what I had to say. She was, she was not interested in being a mom anymore. She was very resentful of us kids, very vocal about it. She was just definitely just mad at us all the time. And she was never around. She would go out drinking. She would work Melaleuca, which is a multi-level marketing scheme. And so she would work that during the day. And then her boyfriend would come over at night or she would go out. So, like, I rarely ever saw her. So, I, I wasn't able to tell her. As I got older, and as just more things were creeping up and more memories were coming back up, I was getting to a point where I was starting to be more vocal with her. And so, I was actually well into my 20s at this point. I remember she she was over, and I told her, or I asked her, I was like, how does Scientology get away with breaking child labor laws? Like I was 13. How did they, how did they do that? They didn't even pay me. Like, how did they do that? Her response to me was, well, some would say that getting your room and board paid for is payment enough. So the fact that they fed me <laughs> and gave me a bed was payment enough for everything that I went through. And at that point I was just like, she's not going to fucking listen to me. There's no point in trying to talk to her about this. And then there was actually one time prior to that too, where we were actually drinking together and I was feeling a little bold and I t 
told her about the guy in the bathroom. I was just telling her because I wanted her to know, like just wanted her to be, you know, that was something that, you know, had happened to me that was traumatic. And she just stops what she's doing. And she's like, well, once a priest kissed me, like, and then that was it. Like, <laughs> and it was because I was a Christian at that time. So I was saying something bad about her religion. And so she was going to say something bad about my religion. She didn't care about what had happened to me. She just had to one up me with her experience because my religion also did bad things. Did any of your siblings ever get into Scientology? Did she try to recruit them at all? Each of my siblings has uh, some experience to varying degrees in Scientology. Most of them just did some courses and didn't like it. The thing that soured almost all of my siblings on Scientology, actually all of them, is what Scientology did to my mother and what it did to our family. It took all of our money. By the time we moved to the States when I was 15, all the money that she got from my dad was gone. She had donated so much of it to them. And then she was never good at making money herself. So I had to work two jobs through high school to help support her and the family. And my brothers had to do that. And all while she was, we were doing this, she was still working for the org here in Denver, making $50 a week. So she still did 40 hours, basically for free, for the church here. When's the last time you spoke with your mom? About seven years ago, as I was, seven years ago, I knew that I had to start talking about what happened to me in Scientology. I knew that this is an evil organization they traffic children. They ring widows for all their worth, all their money. They do bad things. And I had this festering wound inside of me that I needed to start opening. So I knew I had to start talking about my experience in Scientology. And I knew that that would cost my relationship with my mom. Another way Scientology controls you is that if it, you are connected to anybody who speaks negatively at all in any way about the church, you have to disconnect from them. You have to stop talking to them. So I knew that that was going to happen, but I knew that I had to make a choice. I had to tell my story and what happened. I actually wrote her a letter after lots of consideration, and I told her that I needed a break from her and that basically everybody who, you know, people who have had hard childhoods get to, they need time away from their moms and their parents, the, their abuser basically. And I told her that we couldn't talk anymore. And so she, she wrote me a letter back and she said that, you know, she understood and that's what she wants for me. And I was like, okay, cool. And then a week later, she was actually in Clearwater at the time doing Scientology training when I sent her that letter. And so she started texting me saying like, we have to fix this. We have to do something about this. I need to call you. And so I just told her, no, we can't fix this. This is it. We, we can't do it. And then I told her that I've been seeing a counselor and that sci psychiatry and psychology is way better than Scientology ever was. And I sent that and then I blocked her number and I haven't spoken to her since. That is so sad. Yeah. But you and your mom live in the same town now. Yeah. What if you happen to run into her? How would you picture that playing out? I have pictured that playing out many times. I first of all think she would look at me and run. I don't think she'd talk to me. I think she would be the one who would run away. Because she's not really allowed to talk to you. Exactly. 
exactly. And I know that they know that I've been telling my story. So she would not be allowed to talk to me. So I think that that would take care of that, that she would run away from me if I ever ran into her. But if that didn't happen, you know, I don't know. A part of me wants to tell her off as I've gotten older and just more angry about everything. (laughs) Part of me would really just want to yell at her. I don't think I would, though. I think I would probably just walk away, too, and not engage her because it's it's gone. The relationship's gone. It's broken and it's not coming back. Too much has happened. Yeah. But you have kids now. I do. Yeah, I've got two kids. She has grandkids. Has she ever seen them? Yeah, she's she's seen them uh, when they were younger. And that's kind of pretty heartbreaking about the whole thing is like she was an okay grandma. (laughs) So obviously the relationship of my kids with her has has gone away. In the last seven years, when I haven't talked to her, I did allow my brother to take my kids to go see her from time to time. But actually, my sister, she was in Scientology. She was in the Sea Org, actually, but she was much older. And um, my sister still talks to me, right? And I am a suppressive person in the eyes of Scientology. So my mom actually called up my sister one night and told her that if she didn't stop talking to me, then my mom was going to disconnect from her and never talk to her again. And so my sister said, well, I'm not going to stop talking to Kat. I'm not going to do that. And, and at this point, my mom knew I had actually written out my Scientology experience and I posted it to Facebook. So she had asked my sister, like, have you read it? Did you read what my, what Kat said? And my sister's like, no, I didn't want to be caught in the middle. That's when my mom said, like, you have to disconnect from, you have to stop talking to Kat or I have to disconnect from you. My sister said, well, everything that she said was true. You know, what she said was true. And then my mom laughed and said, what does truth have to do with it? She disconnected from my sister. And so in that, I realized how unsafe a person my mom could be to my kids that if she's willing to disconnect from her own daughter because of me, then how could I let them keep having a relationship with her? However mild it was, it was really infrequent that she saw them, but that she would break their hearts. If she, if the church told her to, she would. And so they no longer see her or talk to her. It sounds like you've made a whole lot of progress. Yeah. Do you think Scientology does any good for anyone, or is it just strictly about the money? I think that any good Scientology has ever done is far outweighed by all the bad Scientology does. I think it has little bits that get you hooked, like the success I had with auditing when I first went there for the panic attacks. They really help people with communication. And I think that if anybody learns to communicate better, they're going to do better in life. It's just a really helpful skill to have. Beyond that, their focus is money. Their focus, and anybody who's been and worked for them will tell you it's money. It's not about helping people. And there are people in Scientology who really want to help people. I want to definitely get that across. But any good that that church does is far outweighed by the destruction that it causes in people's lives. You heard Kat mention that on one of her trips to the Celebrity Center in Los Angeles, she met Leah Remini, who at the time was also a Scientologist. Just recently, Leah Remini has filed a lawsuit against the church. She was a member for 17 years, and her lawsuit claims that she was the victim of harassment, 
intimidation, surveillance, and defamation. If you want to ask Kat something about her experience, her email address is in the episode notes, and she's also in our Facebook group, just like a lot of the other podcast guests. You can join more than 5,000 other listeners there at whatwasthatlike.com Facebook. You can see pictures of Kat, and you can get the full transcript for this episode at whatwasthatlike.com slash 148. And we have a voicemail from Sally. Hi, Scott. This is Sally. I felt compelled to reach out. First of all, I'm so glad I happened upon your podcast. I listen at work, in the car, and at home, too. I love it, and I love your voice. The compassion and respect toward your guests can be heard. I also want to say that when I listened to the bonus episode that included the Mannheim, Pennsylvania couple, the Eberleys, victims of the senseless road rage, I was reminded of when this happened, but listening to Mr. Eberly just tore my heart out. I sobbed while listening at work, just so heart-wrenching. Plus, I live in Marietta, Pennsylvania, about 20 minutes from Mannheim. I go through there twice a day to and from work. Thank you, Scott, for my favorite podcast. I appreciate you. Thank you, Sally, and I appreciate you. Sally's one of the supporters of the podcast, and the story that she was talking about is an episode of Raw Audio, where you hear actual 911 audio and stories that go with it. If you'd like to join Sally and the other supporters, you can try it out for free at whatwasthatlike.com support. Graphics for this episode were created by Bob Bretz. Full episode transcription was created by James Lye. And now we're about to hear this week's listener story, which is how we end every episode. If you have a story that you can tell in like five to ten minutes, record it on your phone and email it to me at scott at whatwasthatlike.com. And as you listen to this story from Jeremy, you might notice the audio quality and think, Wow, this guy should be a podcaster. And he actually is. He hosts a podcast called The Teeth, which is about wild animal attacks. You can check it out at theteethpod.com. In this story, Jeremy tells us about the first time he saw a bear in the wild. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks. I'm dating a mule packer in Yosemite National Park one of the most special places on earth. Spending a lot of time visiting her outdoor office over the summer, it's been an absolutely amazing year. But one thing that I'm a little disappointed about is that it's October and I haven't seen a bear yet. Someone always sees one the day before I arrive or the day after I leave. I feel like I'm always just missing them. One evening... In October, around sunset, someone in the distance yells, Get out of here! And my girlfriend comes over to me, all out of breath, and says, Jeremy, there is a bear in the corral trying to eat the grain for the mules. I run over, and the other packers said that they just scared it away and pointed me in the direction that it went. I stop running and cautiously take a trail in the direction of where they said the bear went. Still light enough to clearly see my surroundings, and there's a large field beside the trail with a good vantage point. I walk about an eighth of a mile with 
low expectations. And what do you know? On the edge of the field beside some trees is a black bear. I'm so happy and excited to finally see a bear in Yosemite. Black bears are naturally active during the day, but in areas with a lot of human activity, they become uh, nocturnal or crepuscular, meaning they are most active in the evenings and early mornings in an attempt to avoid humans. I'm on a trail a good two or 300 yards from the bear. She is not reacting to me at all, which is a good sign. While the animal is reacting to my presence at all, that means I need to get back and respect their space. Could this moment get any better? Turns out it could and does because the bear has two cubs with her, the cutest little boogers ever. They're playing clumsily pretty close to her as she scavenges a crab apple tree. I'm speechless with just a huge smile on my face. A few hikers pass me and I don't even point out the bears. They just keep moving along the trail completely oblivious. <laughs> How many bears have I passed in my life without even noticing them myself? After about half an hour of observing the bears from the trail, I noticed for the first time the mother was looking at me. More than looking at me, she was glaring at me and not moving at all. This was new. Even though she was a few hundred yards away, her body was squared off in my direction and glaring. It's interesting with animals, they don't speak English but they can send a message crystal clear when they need to. And this message was that she wanted to kill me. As I was asking myself, why would she all of a sudden, I heard a branch break behind me. I quickly looked for the cubs. One of the cubs was right next to the mother. I didn't have to look behind me to know that the second cub was what made that branch break. And I didn't want the mama to see me looking at the cub. So I didn't even turn around. This was it. This is the thing you're not supposed to do. It's literally in the Bible. Don't get between a mother bear and her cubs ever or you will die. She rears up onto her hind legs and came down onto her front legs and grunted as she hit the ground. I literally felt the ground shake seriously like an earthquake. The instant her front paws hit the ground, I could see the cub next to her scramble up a tree. I could also hear the cub behind me scrambling up a tree. Things were getting real. She was still holding that death stare towards me, but was not running towards me, which was good. <laughs> I started walking slowly sideways in the direction that was going away from the mother and the cub in the tree behind me. I was kind of walking sideways away from both of them. It's bad to run or turn your back on a predator. So I kept facing the mother and slowly picked up my speed while walking kind of sideways backwards, but in a way that was not trying to look panicked. But in my mind, I'm saying, please don't kill me, mama bear. Please don't kill me, mama bear. She didn't react to me moving away, which I think is a good thing. I kept going but never turned my back to her. It was getting darker now, and after a few hundred yards, I told myself that if she hasn't started chasing me, she probably won't, unless she was giving me a head start. Doesn't matter. I just kept going and kept breathing and kept facing her direction until eventually I couldn't really see her. I got back to camp 
but the adrenaline pulsing through my body didn't calm down for hours. After never seeing a bear in Yosemite, I then went on to see a dozen more the next morning along that same trail in the valley. Since this close call, I've become fascinated with bears and other wild predators and started interviewing survivors of wild animal attacks in an attempt to understand and educate others on how to peacefully coexist in the wilderness. My name is Jeremy Carberry, and it's an honor to be a small part of the What Was That Like podcast. Hey, this is Scott. Did you know we offer a premium feed of this show that is completely ad-free and there are bonus episodes? Go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus or just click the link in the show notes of any episode to learn more and to sign up. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can sign up right there in the app by clicking try free at the top of the episode list. And I hope to see you in the premium feed soon.